Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over the Show. It discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And I'm Mother! <laughs> you what? It's my, my Mrs. Bates impression. Did you like it? No. <laughs> I had no idea what that was. <laughs> Okay. Um, so to confirm we're not actually joined by Mrs Bates today no. um, but we are talking about one of the greatest films of all time yes I would class this as the most influential horror film of all time yeah this really brought about all the horror we saw afterwards and you know there's an argument against that but I, I do feel like this is the one that started it all Technically the first slash film of all time. Yeah, yeah, people say Peeping Tom. Mm, same year. Same year. I think obviously more people... Oh, it's about a face. Same year. Yeah. Um, yeah. 1960 yeah. was a fucking was good great, year for yeah. horror. Um, but I, I mean in terms of modernising the horror genre, um, creating a very human uh, horror villain... I think this is really where it all started. Yeah, this is groundbreaking in the way that it feels like, uh, like you said, a lot more modern. And I can't imagine, you know, cinemas back in 1960 having gone from, you know, seeing the likes of House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. I mean, of course, you had um, Homicidal prior to this. You know, obviously, I don't think he made as much money as this did, but... Um, Homicidal was after this. Was it after? So I thought... Oh, no, sorry. Homicidal's the biggest Homicidal is film. after. What I'm getting mixed up is the the gimmick that Alfred Hitchcock uses here, he took from William Castle. He was influenced by yeah. William Castle. Yeah, no, Homicidal was very much a psycho yeah. ripoff. Yeah. This is the first of its kind. We are talking about Psycho. We are talking about Psycho. Yes. Uh, released in 1960, directed, of course, by Sir Alfred Hitchcock... Made on a budget of $806,947 and it managed to gross over $32 million yeah. worldwide. Yeah, it was a huge success, huge, massive film. A, um, what do kids call it these days? A cultural reset. Yes. In terms of horror cinema. Um, it, it, it's just an impeccable film. Yeah. Impeccably made, impeccably paced. Um, the acting is phenomenal throughout. Really incredible. Just it's just a fucking great film. Yeah, really, just a great yeah. film. It's 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 also it's also a scary film. Like this is one of the scariest films of all time, in my mm. opinion. Yeah. Um, still holds up. Yeah. sixty years later. Every time I watch this film, it feels like the first time I watched it. Yeah, over and over, and no no film has that effect on me. Um, but it's so intense, so intense, and. When you're analysing it as well, you realise how much of a of a nasty film this really is, um, which is it's easy to overlook. Quite, it, it's yeah. it's so easy to be like, oh, Psycho, the shower scene, you know, him dressing as his mother. It's, it's really easy to overlook that, but then when you sit down and you analyse it, it is like this is fucking deep for a film released in nineteen sixty. Yeah, could you imagine? And we were fully aware of the plot twist. Yeah. and the plot. And before watching it, yeah, could you imagine in nineteen sixty going to the cinema oh, watching no. Alfred Hitchcock's yeah. film? Alfred Hitchcock always he made very suspenseful mm. thrillers, 
Um, so it, it wasn't new for an audience, the, the Hitchcock way. Yeah. Um, but imagine going in and, and watching this film. It's called Psycho, admittedly. Mm. Um, so you're expecting some horror. But watching this unfold and unravel in front of you, having absolutely no idea what was going to happen, having not been desensitised horror really mm. that much, yes. that kind of horror, that very real, you know, this could be my next door neighbour sort of horror. Mm. And watching this film, you know, in 1960, it would be an incredible I'd have, First of all, I'd have thought it was the cop. At the start, yeah, I, I would have thought it was him. Oh God, yeah, the, the guy that acts like Michael Myers. Yes. <laughs> you know, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into it anyway. Yeah. So um, Hitchcock was so pleased with the score written by Bernard Herrmann that he doubled the composer's salary to thirty four thousand dollars, uh, five hundred and thirty four five hundred whatever, a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Hitchcock later said thirty three percent of the effects of Psycho was due to the music, and it's true. It's it's one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. It, it really is. It's just strings, but it just works. It, it it really works, and it's just quite simple. It is quite simple, yeah. really. It's not too overblown. It's it's not grand in any way. But it just works. It yeah. works perfectly in every situation it's used in. Yeah, really phenomenal. Phenomenal score. When the cast and crew began uh, work on the first day, they had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story. And Hitchcock mm. also without the ending of the script uh, from his cast until they needed to shoot it. Yeah. Uh, this is a big, big, you know, hush-hush film. It, it was just one big secret. And we'll get on, a little later on, we'll get on to... Uh, his method with theatres um, regarding this, but, you know, I mean, the twist was obviously a big part of this film. Yeah, yeah, massive. Uh, Walt Disney refused to allow Hitchcock to film at Disneyland in the early 60s uh, because he made that disgusting movie, Psycho. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Hitchcock originally envisioned this shower sequence as completely silent, but after he heard the score on it, he completely changed his mind. And it's true. Do you know what? I could see it in both instances. I mean, you know, that in complete silence. It would have been effective, but I can't imagine seeing that now without yeah. that score. And, and admittedly, he uses both within the whole scene. Yeah, yeah. Within the whole uh, murder scene, he uses both uh, expertly as well. Mm. Like, yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to sit here and say, this is fucking great. Everybody watch it. Because it's true. It's fucking great. Everybody well, yeah. It. If anybody told you it isn't, then you know they're lying to you. Yeah, we on this podcast we talk about taste and taste levels and what can be deemed a great film or a good film or a shit film, um, and really we tend to sort of say you like what you like, that's fine. We like what we like. You know, we mm. all find stuff from films that we enjoy or don't enjoy. It, it's all a personal preference. If you don't like Psycho, you've got no taste level. <laughs> it's if, if you it's don't, one if, of those films. If you don't like it, then don't talk to me about if, films. Or if you can't admit that it's well made, if you can't, yeah. you know, then it's you're ignorant to film. Yeah. Um, on set, Hitchcock would always refer to Anthony Perkins as Master Bates. Uh, you know. Lovely. Obviously. And, uh, Hitchcock's iffy. He had, yeah, he had a, uh, a reputation for occasionally harassing male and female cast members like this. Yeah. I mean, there's the whole story with the birds. That's a little iffy. I think Tibby Hedron was uh, put through the ringer, wasn't she? Yeah. 
by old Hitchcock. Yeah, there there is a film about Hitchcock making Psycho uh, called Hitchcock that we, we do own, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, we should have really. Is that that's the one with Hannah Mirren in? It is, it? yeah. Oh, that's yeah, yeah Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, yeah. Uh, Hitchcock brought the rights to the novel anonymously, anonymously uh, from Robert Bloch for only nine thousand dollars. He then brought as many copies of the novel as he could to keep the end in a secret. So this is based on a novel, also based on the real-life story of Ed Gein. Yes. Uh, as like so many phenomenal many, films many, are. Many, many films are. It's, it's quite funny, really, because when, when you hear the story of Ed Gein, it's a creepy one, but everybody thinks he's this sort of mass serial killer, when he wasn't really. He was more of a grave robber than anything else. Yeah. Um, he, you know... People put him up there with Ted Bundy and uh, and such in terms of serial killers. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's a ranked list anywhere of <laughs> top ten serial killers. Um, but Ed Gein was really more of a grave robber, but he did make stuff out of skin and he did dress in women's skin and women's yeah. clothing. And that story has influenced Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Yeah. Um, of course, Psycho, um, so many great and iffy, like, uh, Deranged was good, you enjoyed Deranged. Deranged is really I didn't good. watch Deranged. Yeah, Deranged is, is, is a very uncomfortable film to watch. It, it really, I think that's probably, you know, the closest to the Ed Gein story mm. um, that I've seen out of all these films. Uh, and it really does present a lot of realism, which makes it all the more disturbing. Uh, in the opening scene, Marion Crane is wearing a white bra because Hitchcock wanted to show that she's being angelic. After she's taken the money, the following scene has her in a black bra because she's now done something wrong and evil. Uh, similarly, before she steals the money, she has a white purse and then the purse is black after. And it's just these little touches that really, you know, really show off what Hitchcock is capable of. It's the... It shows a master filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and, and he certainly wasn't new to film when he made Psycho. Oh, God, no. Um, no. And he wasn't new to success, you know. It wasn't like this was his first major success. Um, but he knew what he was doing. And those subtle details you don't always get in films. And it makes something like a podcast like this much easier. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it gives us something yeah. to talk about. <laughs> after the movie's release, Hitchcock received an angry letter from the father of a girl who refused to have a bath after seeing her Diabolique. <laughs> And now she refused to have a shower after seeing this film. And he wrote her a note back saying, send her to the dry cleaners. <laughs> well, if, if she had reacted that way to Diabolique, then... Why let her watch Psycho? Why let her watch Psycho? <laughs> I mean, it, it's not like it's called Little House on the Prairie and suddenly you're watching a horror film. It's called Psycho, for Christ's sake. Which is a fucking great title. I know it was taken from the book. It's a fucking great title for a book and a great title for a film as well. Yeah, Psycho. So, so simple, so to the point. Uh huh. Um, you know, does exactly what it says on the tin. <laughs> Paramount Pictures gave uh, Hitchcock a very small budget uh, with which to work because of their distaste with the source material. They also deferred most of the box office tape to uh, Hitchcock, thinking the movie would fail uh, while it became a sleeper hit and he made a fortune. Yeah. So, of course, it, it just, you know. You wouldn't expect a film like this to make money. 
Not necessarily. Not back then. I mean, you would with something like, as I mentioned earlier, House on Haunted Hill, you know, 13 Ghosts, The Haunting, because that's the sort of horror that was about back then, that and the Universal Monsters, of course. Um, I mean, this is a monster movie in its own right. Um, but, you know, something like this that hadn't been heard of is a big risk to take. And well, it's, it's relying on people's sensibilities. Yeah. And, you know, it got its fair share of backlash. Yeah. Because of the, um, the, the plot, because of, you know, what it was. But at the end of the day, people love shit like that. Yeah. They always have and they always will. They, you know, we're called horrorcore trash over. We love this shit. Yeah. And there's a huge audience out there for horror. Always has been and always will be. Yeah. So the reason uh, Hitchcock cameoed so early in the movie was because he knew people would be looking out for him at this stage because he had done it so many times in his other films uh, and he didn't want to divert their attention away from the plot. This one is very easy to miss. Like, whereas the birds, he's practically in your face. Yeah. <laughs> this it's a very one, small cast. It, yeah. Of, once you sort of get towards, you know, well, kind of a quarter of the way through it or a yeah. third of the way through it, it's not a huge cast of characters, really. Um, so just plunking him somewhere would, would look a bit weird. Obviously, he never spoke in his cameos, really, no. did he? I don't think he ever did. Um, so where would, where would he pop up? Sort of in, exactly. You know, in the background, on, on a hill, or, you know? It just wouldn't have worked either way. No. Uh, he he wanted to make this movie so much that I mean, as we mentioned about the uh, the earnings and such of the film, Hitchcock wanted to make this movie so much that he deferred his standard two hundred and fifty thousand salary, uh, in lieu of the sixty uh, percent of the movie's gross. Wow. Um, that happens a lot. Yeah, so his his personal earnings uh, from the film exceeded fifteen million. Adjusted for inflation, that amount would be just over one hundred and twenty million wow. now. Yeah, I mean, so many people have done. Um, it's weird. You think of these movie studios. You you think they'd know what people would want to watch. Yeah. Um, but seemingly they don't. No. No. <laughs> Was it? I think Tom Hanks did something similar with um either Philadelphia or, or Forrest Gump, where he you know deferred his usual salary, took a percentage of the profits and made millions of millions and mil. You know. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. Uh, so Janet Lee, of course, is in this. Mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, for anyone who doesn't know that. Yeah. Uh, although she wasn't bothered by the filming of the uh, the famous shower scene, seeing it on the film actually moved her, and she later remarked that it made her realise how vulnerable a woman she was in the shower. Yeah. It is a weird... I, I've always sort of... On my bucket list, I was like, I've always wanted to sort of star in a, in a horror film, and of course I would like a big grand death scene. Yeah. You know, um... But I think it would be weird to watch yourself being killed. Yeah. Well, on a big screen. It affected her so much that to the end of her life, she always took baths. She never took another shower again. I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned earlier that about. It must be very time consuming. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the gimmick. Um, to ensure people were in theatres at the start of the film, uh, rather than walking in partway through, the studio provided a record to play in the foyer of theatres. Uh, the album featured background music. Occasionally interrupted by a voice saying 10 minutes to psycho time, 5 minutes to psycho time and so on. And uh, every single theatre that showed the film 
had a cardboard cutout installed in the lobby of Hitchcock pointing to his wristwatch uh, with a note saying, the manager of this theatre has been instructed at the risk of his life not to admit to the theatre any person after the picture starts, any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, fire escapes or ventilating shafts will be met by force. The entire objective of this extraordinary policy, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. Uh, we recently posted this on our Instagram, actually. It's a great bit of marketing material. Yeah, and it, much like William Castle, it's putting the director at the forefront of yeah. it all. Yeah. Um, you can see where the influence from William Castle was. Uh, we did a whole podcast dedicated to William Castle's film, so if you haven't listened to that, go yes. back. And you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah, he he's like the joke shop version of Hitchcock, really. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. He's he's kind of the whoopee cushion version. Yeah, he's, he's a fantastic filmmaker, but, but you know he. But what it is is fantastic. Yeah, and he was a showman. Yeah, and he was a fantastic um, promoter of his films. Hmm. Um, I think Alfred Hitchcock became more that way, yeah. particularly after Psycho. He wasn't just the guy behind the camera that no one knew. He was the guy in the lobby pointing at his wristwatch. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it became one of those, and I say it quite a few times, there's certain people you won't go, oh, are you going to go see their new film? Mm. But people would say, are you going to go see the new Hitchcock film? You know, it's one of those. Yeah where it's not necessarily talking about the film itself, but are you going to see the new Hitchcock film? Hitchcock has got a new film out. You yeah. Know, what What are we expecting from the new Hitchcock film? No matter... And then, of course, he made fantastic films, yeah. even after Psycho. Uh-huh. Um, but it really... He became sort of forefront of his filmmaking. Yeah. One of the reasons uh, Hitchcock shot the movie in black and white was he thought it would be too gory in colour... And the main reason uh, he wanted to make the film as inexpensively as possible, uh, under $1 million, uh, he also wondered if so many bad, inexpensively made black and white B-movies did so well at the box office, uh, what would happen if a really good, inexpensively black and white film was made? So he basically wanted to see if it was just B-movies that got away with it, or if he could make something good in black and white. It's a little arrogant. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Hitchcock we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, but you don't drink your own Kool-Aid, do you? <laughs> Janet Lee received threatening letters after the film's release detailing what they would like to do to Marion Crane. And one was so grotesque that she passed it on to the FBI and the culprits were discovered and the FBI said she should notify him again if it ever happened again. Oh, God. Which, I mean, you know, is obviously a common thing in horror after this. I mean, there's a whole Adrian King thing with Friday the 13th. Oh, yeah. People are weird. Horror fans are weird too. Yeah. <laughs> as a, as a, but still, keep listening to us, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're one of the non weird ones. We're all, we're all right. I'll, I'll, I'll I'm promise. sure our listeners are as well. Yeah, I promise you are as well. <laughs> Hitchcock used uh, Bosco chocolate syrup instead of blood because it showed up better on camera, which obviously you can't tell because it's in black and white. Did you say instead of blood? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's instead of blood. He wasn't going to use real blood. No, but I mean, you could have used pig's blood, you know. Oh, poor Janet Lee. That was true. Oh, yeah, fake blood. No, we used chocolate syrup. Chocolate syrup. And it worked. And the sound that the knife makes penetrating the flesh is actually the sound of a knife stabbing a melon. The flesh. <laughs> it, it does sound like that, but 
I used to see that. I, I, I don't know. I did this. I don't know. I've I've never been stabbed or. I did this anyone, for. So I don't know what it sounds. A like. college short film. No, not that one. A college short film, and it does. It makes a very disgusting noise. Well, the films used to have whole teams dedicated to it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And in the best sounds, because I I don't. Again, I've never stabbed anyone. I've never been stabbed. So I don't. I don't know for a fact, but I'm assuming it wouldn't actually make that much of a noise. <laughs> really. So. When I do uh, my research for these films, I usually find like one reoccurring thing, and this time it is absolutely Janet Lee's boobs. Oh, I have read so much about Janet Lee's body that I feel like I know it inside out by now, and and that that is in, that is concerning that there was that much trivia about her body on the internet. What are we saying about horror fans being there? <laughs> this is, this wasn't my choice. <laughs> So, Janet Lee wore moleskin um, adhesive, 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 whatever, adhesive. patches, thank you, patches covering her private parts when she acted out the shower scene so that she, would, she, she wouldn't really be nude and the camera would not pick up anything supposedly obscene. However, after the warm water of the shower washed off the moleskin, Hitchcock still did one more take and supposedly the take wasn't used in a finished film, even though countless people have swore that they could see Janet Lee's boobs in the film. Yeah, I I mean I can't say I was looking out for them, no, but I I didn't see, I didn't see anything myself. <laughs> but you know, people people see what they want to see, don't they? They do, they do. <laughs> As part of a publicity campaign prior to the release of the film, Hitchcock said it has been rumored that Psycho is so terrifying that it will scare some people speechless. Some of my men have sent their wives to a screening. The women emerged badly shaken but still vigorously vocal. <laughs> Oh, women. Oh, women. Oh, isn't that just typical of women? Uh, women in the 60s. Oh, God. Oh, wow. Let's go send our, our wives to test screen. Yeah, don't, don't, let, don't let your wives go see this. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Joseph Stefano was adamant about seeing a toilet on screen to display realism. So, if you don't know, this is the first film in history to show a toilet flushing. <laughs> Joseph Stefano was so adamant to see this and he he wanted to see it flush and Hitchcock told him he had to make it so through his writing because he's the writer of the film if he wanted to see it so Stefano wrote the scene in which Marion adds up the money then flushes the paper down the toilet specifically so the toilet flushing was integral to the scene and therefore irremovable uh, and this was the, again this is the first American movie and possibly first movie ever to show toilet flushing on screen Wow, that's a claim to fame, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's the most fun for, isn't it? To add to the real, yeah, I know, yeah. But to add to the, I suppose it adds to the realism. I suppose every, I mean, I'm assuming everyone sees a flushing toilet every day, many times, really. So yeah. we all flush the toilet, don't we? Yeah, I, I was looking out for that. I mean, you know, every time I watch it, I was looking out for that scene. It's so important. <laughs> Groundbreaking. <laughs> I suppose in a way it is. I mean, you think of, like, weird sensibilities in cinema. Like, yeah. Why wouldn't there have been a flushing toilet exactly. before? You know, she's not flushing a turd down it. We're not watching her poo go down the bloody <laughs> um, <laughs> toilet bowl. You know, it's just a flushing toilet. See, when I first watched that prior to... Uh, well, first, when I first read that prior to watching the film, mm. 
I didn't know what to expect, and I actually thought I was going to see her flushing a shit down the toilet. Oh, so I was relieved when it wasn't. <sighs> Hitchcock was initially disappointed with the film. Uh, he even disliked the shower scene and believed the film would end up on a low-budget driving double bill. Oh, my God. Um, according to Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock thought of editing it down for broadcast on his television show, uh, Hitchcock Presents, which was ongoing at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hitchcock did not conceive of music for the shower scene, of course, as I've already said, but Herman did it anyway. After seeing the film with its score, that's when he realised the film would work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would, I don't think you could condense it down. No, no. Uh, without taking away from it. I don't, I don't think you could make it an hour film and have the build-up that it does. Yeah. The twist that it does. And that's the thing, it's bordering on two hours. Yeah, mm. it's an hour and 50 minutes, but every second of the film is necessary. Yeah. Because it does that thing that uh, films like um, From Dusk Till Dawn and Overlord have done since uh, this, where it starts off feeling like one genre and then the horror just happens incidentally. Yeah. Through, you know, wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, for one part, this is a crime drama, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Femme fatale crime drama. And potentially a romance, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, there is flirtation between Norman and Marion. Yeah. You know, um, potentially it could have been a love triangle um, with the many... At the end of the day, it is called Psycho, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you're expecting something to happen. Um, not quite what does happen, really, I don't think, from a 1960 perspective. But you're, you're kind of expecting something to happen. <laughs> uh, uh, he actually still... After he, obviously, he came to terms with, with liking the film and such, um, after this, he still hated the psychiatrist explanation scene at the end, uh, as did apparently many people. Because they felt it, it, ground, it grinded a halt to the pace of the film and uh, just went on a bit too long. But <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I think it's necessary. It is necessary. And it's a very mild picking at straws here. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a little too long. Yeah. It, it is. Because we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah, at the end. Hitchcock teased the press that Dame Judith Anderson, uh, who was Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, uh, would play the part of Mrs. Bates. Ah. <laughs> so he was acting like someone was actually going to play Mrs. Bates yeah, in the film. Uh, that, that works. Yeah. It has to. Hitchcock uh, produced this film when uh, plans to make a film starring Audrey Hepburn called No Bail for the Judge fell through. Oh. No Bail yeah. for the Judge. I don't know if you like that title. Although the idea of um, Audrey Hepburn being in an Alfred Hitchcock film would have been quite good. I'm surprised it didn't happen. It didn't, yeah. She did, I mean, she was all sort of known as a romantic comedy star, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah. Um, but we watched Wait Until Dark, which she was fantastic oh, yeah. in. Yeah. And that's, that's very much a Hitchcock style, Yeah. you know, suspense uh, thriller. Um, I highly recommend that one. Wait Until Dark was good and... She did uh, charade, or charade, uh, charade, and uh, that, that was very much a sort of Hitchcock espionage style film. Yes. Um, so that would it would have been interesting to see. Although the title sounds awful. Uh, Hitchcock. Uh, 
Well, I'm reading the wrong part of my trivia, but it does involve him. This is his film. Um, the film was sched- first scheduled to air on US network television in the fall of 1966, just before it would have aired. Aired, uh, aired, however. Valerie Percy, the daughter of the then US uh, Senate candidate, uh, Charles H. Percy, was stabbed to death apparently by an intruder in a murder that remains unsolved to this day. Um, it was deemed prudent under the circumstances to postpone the scheduled airing. Uh, ultimately, this film was not shown on US network television till 1970. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it did have a... a few times, hasn't it? Yeah. Real-life things. It got a uh, theatrical rerun in 1969. That was so successful to the point they had to start showing it on TV after that. Oh, Maybe they didn't cut it down for TV. It's a big thing in America, isn't it, where they cut these films Well, there's down an or... uncut version of this that's only recently been released oh. on 4K, which we haven't got yet, but, uh, yeah, that's only just been released. Uncut in what sense? As in... I, I don't know. There's, there's obviously things cut like from Like a director's it. cut, like what we watched wasn't Alfred Hitchcock's True Vision. Maybe. Oh, oh I didn't know that. And the film marked the fifth and final time that Hitchcock earned an Oscar nomination for Best Director, but he never won. That That's incredible to me, that he never won. I do find that seriously weird. You know, and you can go on about your Martin Scorsese taking so long mm. to, to get the win for yeah. Departed, wasn't it? Um, but Alfred Hitchcock never winning, I, I do find that incredibly unjust. Yeah, uh, and of course, uh, this brings about the fact that this is uh, one of the rare cases of an Oscar-nominated film. Uh, it won. It won yeah. some Oscars, didn't it? Oh no, I don't think so. Did it not? No, I believe Janet Lee was nominated. Um, obviously, Alfred Hitchcock was nominated. It wasn't nominated for a uh, best picture or anything. I'm sorry, I'm doing that very unprofessional <laughs> thing where I look at the IMDb. Um, Wasn't Anthony Perkins nominated? No, and he fucking should have been. Mm-hmm. He really, definitely should have been. It was Best Supporting Actress for Janet Leigh. Yeah. Best Director for Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Best Cinematography, Black and White. Mm-hmm. And Best Art Direction, Set Decoration. The soundtrack wasn't nominated. The soundtrack was wow. not nominated. How and it never won any of those. It didn't win any. That's no, shocking. How shocking is that? It did not win for Best Soundtrack. At least Best Soundtrack. And Anthony Perkins wasn't nominated. I find that incredible. Well, speaking of Anthony Perkins, uh, Hitchcock wanted him from the beginning. Uh, In the novel, Norman is described as being in his 40s, short, overweight and homely. But uh, Hitchcock wanted a more boy-next-door type of person uh, because he thought he was tall, thin and handsome and in his 20s. And it works. Yeah. It works so much more for the film. Um, The same way that Shelley Duvall worked for The Shining. Yeah. You know, she wasn't some big, beautiful, blonde woman. She was, she was you know, obviously gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but very sort of homely and normal looking. Uh-huh. The woman you'd find next door. Norman Bates was the guy you'd find next door. He wasn't, you know, atrocious looking. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't very obvious that he would be the killer or that he was a weirdo. He was handsome, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, you know... It, it wasn't like Rock Hudson or that kind of 
film star. He was boy next door. He was. Yeah. I mean, I keep saying that, but it's true. <laughs> this is uh, currently the oldest film in history to carry an R rating. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's been eight... It's from the original release? From the original release. It's been, you know, post-40 MPAA many times, but it's uh, never got away from that rating. Oh, whereas others got an R rating before this was released. Yeah, so you... But subsequently, afterwards... Yeah, my best example is Terminator. The Terminator was an 18 in the UK uh, when it was first released, but that's slowly been put down to a 15 over the years. Um, And and this was... Yeah, this has just always... It's been, well, 15 in the UK since that was introduced. uh, And an R rating in America all, all this time. Wow. Okay. That's an actually really interesting factor, didn't I? Yeah. Tony Curtis, uh, Janet Lee's husband at the time, claimed in his autobiography that psycho success and the fact that all anyone would ever talk to Janet about was the shower scene, drove her to drink and eventually led to her breakdown and their divorce. Wow. Mm. It must be difficult to be sort of synonymous with one film role. Yeah. We've seen her in a few... Later on, she was in The Fog and she was, yeah. Halloween H2O. Uh, we also saw her in the Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. didn't we? Yeah. Um, but she's definitely one of those actresses that is really only well-known for one film role, which which must be a shame. You know, if you're a working actress trying to make a successful career and she probably, every script she got afterwards was murder victim or horror heroine or, you know, that's yeah. all she would have gotten after that. It must be quite disconcerting. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so, this is obviously included in loads of lists, uh, including Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. You don't get many of those on this podcast. <laughs> um, number one best horror film of all time by Watch Mojo. Uh, it's amongst the top 100 most heart-pounded American films. You know, it, it's obviously, to this day, still considered a classic by many critics. Well, just there. today, you, were, you went through the letterbox list... Of top yeah. horror films, and it was number one, wasn't it? Was it? Number one on that, on yeah. That box. So it's very well deserved. Yeah, very successful. I mean, it's on the IMDb's top two hundred and fifty. It's you know at number forty one. You know it's, um, a classic. It really is, and it, it's synonymous with great horror film making. Obviously, one thing that needs to be discussed, uh, that is, you know, one thing surrounding this film by a modern audience is the trans representation. Uh, the MPAA objected to use the term transvestite to describe Norman Bates in the final wrap-up. They insisted uh, that it would be removed until the writer proved to them that it was a clinical psychology term. They thought he was trying to get one over on them and place the vulgarity in the picture. Wow. How things have changed in 60 years. And it's like I said to you before recording, this is the only film I've seen that's got iffy trans representation where a character in the film actually corrects another character when they refer to this person as a transvestite. Yeah. And it tries to distance itself away from that. And you've got films being made, you know, years later... That don't. They, they say this is the reason why this person's going around killing people. And yeah, you know what? Seeing a man dressed up as a woman going around killing people is not great. It is if you trans representation. But if you continue watching past that point, it, it does explain it away. It, it does. I, th- I think my issue with uh, this 
uh, moment in the film is that the, the term transvestite is used um, quite um, disparagingly. Mm. It's uh, every, the whole room is sort of like, oh, transvestite, you know? Yeah. It was, and then he has to say, no, it's not a transvestite, because transvestites are like fucking sexual predators. And that's what he's essentially saying. Transvestite, oh, they only dress up women to get their mm. sexual kicks and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Science of the Lambs does the same though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Loads of the greatest films of all time do it, and, and you know it, it is it is a problem. The, the thing it, at the end of the day, it, this is sixty years old. Yeah, it it is iffy. It's a sign of the times. You know, and and we now can sit there and go, okay, that that's not yeah. that, that's not correct. Yeah, and and the thing is, you know, a modern audience can sit there and watch it and realize it's not okay now. Uh, and it was almost like a time capsule to see how shocking it was that something like that would be acceptable at the time to be released. Yeah. Uh, it's if thing, people start doing it nowadays, <coughs> J.K. Rowling, uh, where it becomes a problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and if, you know, if, you, if you make a modern film, you write a modern novel, J.K. Rowling, and you include something like this in it, you are a piece of shit and you're transphobic. As simple as that. Yeah, yeah. It's... I, I don't know. Obviously, she hasn't wrote the novel yet. She has. Has she wrote it? She has. That's how, that's how we know about it, because it's had reviews. Oh, has it? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Apparently, the message it puts across uh, is uh, that the only the only good type of woman is a man. Oh, shit. Yeah. I'm still calling those lines anyway. Um, Stephen King, for my final piece of trivia, and this is the most trivia we've ever had for any film on this podcast... We're still yet to get to the film. Um, Stephen King said, People remember the first time they experienced Janet Lee, and no remake or sequel could top that moment when the curtain is pulled back and the knife starts to do its work. And that brings me on to the fact that this has a remake. We're not doing it for original versus remake because the remake is shit. We're just saying that right now. It's scene for scene, it would be pointless. Mm. Vince Ford has a wank, that is the only difference. And the film also spawned many sequels. Well, many sequels, three sequels. And uh, I believe there was a TV series in the 80s. And of course, Bates Motel, the TV series, which I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with now, um, also exists. Yeah, and um, Anthony Perkins returned for each of the sequels, yeah, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he, he seemed to love the role. I think Psycho 2's kind of um, well-received. It's a cult classic. Psycho 2 was well received. I think, and this is the difference between Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, is that Janet Lee was forced into this role afterwards, um, but she couldn't return for the sequels because she was dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. She, she was the famous victim in the film, whereas mm. Anthony Perkins, as the killer who survived, yeah. well, he got paychecks. For three subsequent films, mm. you know, I think he directed one of them as well. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the issue is, uh, and I mean I don't know Janet Lee, but I, I feel like one of the issues with the whole of that is that she's typecast into this role as a victim, and if she dies in every film that she's in, she's never gonna get a sequel. She's dead. Her character's yeah. dead. Yeah. Whereas Anthony Perkins is getting paychecks for decades. Well, I mean, even for Crimes of Passion, he, he's very much playing a Norman Bates type character in Crimes of Passion. Yeah, he is. You know? But then, 
he looks like he enjoyed it. Yeah. Just particularly yeah. in Crimes of Passion, you know, 20 odd years after this film. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I mean, some people are typecast and they, they're phenomenal. Yeah. You know, in, in that role. And cool. I enjoy watching it. And I think we'll actually, we'll schedule a podcast episode in for Crimes of Passion. I think there's a lot that could be said about that film. I think so. So, finally getting into the film, 40 minutes into our episode. Uh, <laughs> I'm almost giving you the Janet Lee treatment here. Oh, shit, you thought yeah. it was just trivia, but we are actually going to speak end. about the film. <laughs> a Phoenix secretary uh, embezzle, embezzles, embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client, goes on the run and checks into a remote motel run by a young man under the domination of his mother. We get opening titles uh, with lots of lines and a fantastic score. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's iconic um, title sequence with an iconic score. Yeah. So it was Saul Bass, he did the title. I think he did all of Hitchcock's from a certain point, mm. didn't he? Um he he directed a few films himself. He was quite successful. Yeah. And he did he do Phase Four? I think he's a man of many talents. Didn't he do artwork for Kubrick? I believe so, yeah. I think so. Um and obviously the iconic Bernard Herman score. That yeah. was totally ripped off by Reanimator. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, the director will admit that. I, felt, I was like, oh shit, Gary's put on Reanimator by accident. <laughs> oh no, it's just, it's okay. <laughs> it's Friday, December 11th at 3.43pm. Marion Crane didn't eat a lunch, but she needs to get back to her boss. Where are we? Phoenix, Arizona. We are. And she hates having to meet at hotels with uh, with her lover, Sam Loomis. Yes, that is where the Halloween <laughs> Sam Loomis name came from. So we see um, Marion in a bra, essentially. The first time we see her, yeah. she's in, in a white bra, but she's post-coital, you know, with her boyfriend in a seedy hotel. Yeah. Or oh, that's how she feels it is. And... Um, so she's, we see from the get-go, this is, she's a sexualized woman. Yeah. I mean, he's got his top off as well, you know. Um, but from the get-go, you're like, oh, okay, this is a different kind of horror heroine. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, she's kind of at it, isn't she? Yeah. These, these trysts on her lunch break. She's had enough of it, and she wants to live a happy life with him. As a married woman. Yes. Or nothing at all. Yeah, he's waiting for his debts to be paid off and for his ex-wife to get remarried. Yeah, so there's definitely... He, he does go on a little bit about his ex-wife, <laughs> um, but also his money troubles. You know, he's constantly having to pay her money. Um, alimony, it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is a very American thing, isn't it? Alimony? I think so. I don't think we get that here. Um, and he's got many debts. Does he own... The shop that he wants. I think so, he owns the shop. I think he owns it, yeah. but he, he's struggling financially, and this is very um, emphasised in this scene yeah. that he's got money troubles, and he's reluctant to marry her until these money troubles are over. Yes, and uh, we then get our Hitchcock cameo where he's just standing outside Marion's workplace. Yeah, yeah, he's just he's wearing a cowboy hat. Isn't yeah, he? It looks like he's waiting for a taxi or something. So it's not it's not one of his boldest uh, cameos, is it? No, no, no. We're introduced to Tom Cassidy, who walks in. He's like, "All right, darling," starts chatting up everyone in the uh, in the workplace, showing off his money. Yeah, he's very much. He's wearing a cowboy hat, and mm. he's very much the archetypal. Um, is he southern? 
Yes. But yeah, so he's he's larger than life in many respects. Yes. And he's uh, Marion catches his eye, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, he's very flirty with her. He talks a lot about money and how much money he has. He's buying his daughter a house for her wedding, um, and he brags that he's got the cash for the sale mm -hmm. on him. And he says that he never carries more than what he can, what he doesn't mind losing. Yeah. Um, in this case, it's $40,000 that he's got on him, um, which for, uh, you know, that would buy you a house in 1960. So infla for inflation, that's a lot of bloody yeah. money, you know. Um, and she's kind of, <laughs> she's kind of being nice because obviously she's at work, mm -hmm. but she's just kind of ignoring his advances. Um, isn't she? Yes. He's just a bit of a latch. Yeah. She has to take his money to the bank and uh, she tells her boss that she needs to go home after this because she's got a headache. And honestly, after it was going on for that long, I'm not even surprised if she has got a headache. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of weird though. <laughs> Imagine going into your workplace and saying, oh, I've got a bit of a headache. I'm just going to take the afternoon off. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to take this $40,000 and take the yeah. afternoon off. <laughs> but they'd be like, excuse me you've got some aspirin in there get your ass back here and get working um her colleague made me laugh it's quite funny when she says that he was flirting with you must have noticed my wedding ring <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely the reason so marion's packing a suitcase she still has the money she puts the money in her handbag grabs a suitcase and leaves Everything in that scene, sorry, just to go back slightly, mm. everything in that scene leads up to what's going to yes. happen. Yeah. Um, when you watch the film again, you realise what must have been going through Marion's head. Yeah. You know, him showing off his money, um, him saying he never carries more than he wouldn't mind losing. So in her head, obviously she's trying to be polite to him and uh -huh. she's kind of ignoring him. But you, you can imagine that going through her head is, well, if he can stand to lose this, $40,000 to me is a huge yeah. amount, yeah. a life-changing amount. And he says to her at one point, money doesn't buy happiness. It pays off unhappiness. Mm -hmm. So the unhappiness, because she is happy with Sam, yeah. but there's elements of unhappiness mm -hmm. because of his money troubles. So that kind of phrase would resonate in her head and it's all leading up to that moment. Yes. And it's, it's clever writing oh, because yeah. when you watch a film again, like a really fucking great film, you want to watch again and see these moments and that build up to, you know, her taking the money. Yeah, and that's the thing, that's what's so special about this film, is that it, it looks at every tiny detail. Yeah, it's great like, writing as well. Yeah. So she goes off with the money, uh, gets in a car, drives away. Her boss notices her, but she continues to drive. And she has a nap at the side of the road and a police officer pulls up beside her and uh, knocks on the window, wakes her up and makes her panic. Yeah, so she, she doesn't make it to the bank. She goes home, she gets... We see her in a bra again, don't yeah. we? Yeah, this, this is, is when it changes for the black bra. So she's got the money on her bed, but she's packing a suitcase. So we know where this is going. Yeah. Um, and she never makes it to the bank. Spoiler alert. And she, she's driving off. And she, it's a long distance drive. She's tired. 
Um, so she has a nap in her front seat and the cop and the cop's all weirdo. Yeah. The cops are this is what I meant earlier on, as in yeah. you know, if you're watching this for the first time, it's easy to think this cop is the psycho, he's the yeah. type of character. Yeah. Yeah, it's true actually. It's quite a good red herring. And, and I genuinely think John Carpenter might have looked at the way this guy moved around for Michael Myers. <laughs> might. <laughs> Obviously, Halloween was hugely influenced by yeah. this film, massively. I mean, you know, Janet Lee's daughter was in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Sam Loomis was a character. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he taps on the window, doesn't he? And yeah. uh, he wants to know what the hell's going on. Yeah, basically. She tries not to act suspicious, but she's definitely out suspicious. She's massively suspicious, bless her. She's, um, she's trying her best not to be. And it's, it's these moments that really make you resonate with this character in a way that she's very human, she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing, this is clearly not her thing. No. And this is what makes her likeable. She's she's committing a crime, Yeah. but you know she has her reasons for it, and you can see exactly. she doesn't... She isn't doing this maliciously. It, it brings up the question of if we were in that situation, what would we do? Yeah. You know, and it humanises her as a character because we can put ourselves in that position. Yeah. And um, she mistakes not acting shifty with acting aggressively and impatient, yeah. doesn't she? <laughs> She's just getting more and more fuming with him. Yeah. And he's... He's a weirdo anyway, but he he knows something's going on. He knows something weird's going on. Yeah. Um, it's It started with concern, but her reactions to his concern get his back up, don't they? Yeah, oh, definitely. And she shows him her license eventually, and then she leaves. He follows, uh, eventually turns off, but then she goes to buy a new car, and he's there again, just watching her from a distance. Yeah, um... She, as these scenes progress, what these driving scenes are great because uh, and it show, showcases Janet Lee's incredible acting. Yeah. Is that she get, you can see the guilt and the paranoia mm. grow and grow and yeah. grow as this is going on. And you can see it in her face. And, you know, I'm no actor, I'm no acting coach. Um, but it must be really difficult to convey oh, yeah. that much yeah. emotion and the gradual build of that more and more and more yeah. as the film's going on, but only from the face. You yeah. can't use anything else, just the face. Um, yeah, it's really great acting. Yeah. So she goes to buy a new car. Uh, the car salesman is trying to be a car salesman, but she's having none of it. Oh, yeah. He's trying to be a comedian. <laughs> but the... the, the Jokes aren't working. No. They're falling flat, aren't they? It tells her it's the first time a customer has ever high-pressured the salesman. Yeah. She just wants it over and done with. <laughs> and uh, she has to use the ladies who sort some money out a bit. Um, and then she goes out, She goes back to sort the new car out. And uh, the police officer drives in to the sales place. Yeah, he does. So he's watching the whole time from across the road. Yeah. Um, he gets out of the car at one point, and this is very Michael Myers, isn't it? Yeah. He's watching. Um, and then I thought he was going to drive away, but he just drives over, and I'm like, oh, yeah. shit. But he doesn't say anything. He stays silent. No, and then when she's driving off, he slowly starts walking towards the car. Yeah. He's really <laughs> creepy. And it, 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 it thinking about it, it is quite a good red herring. Yeah. Potentially, it could have been him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really. But... Um, the salesman's very... He knows some of fishy's going yeah. on anyway. Um, and it, it's not... All these people are suspicious, not necessarily 
by just because they're suspicious it's her actions and it's her mm. reactions that are making them suspicious she's not really a great liar no you know? um she can't hide the the look on her face and the guilt and and uh, um paranoia and again that humanizes her as a character yeah um because we would all be the same under that situation and she, especially paying by cash as well, he's very suspicious of... Um, well, he kind of just thinks that he's stolen, she's stolen the car, really, yeah. because she's so adamant to get rid of it as soon as possible. Yeah, and of course after this um, is when she's driving and hearing the conversations in her head of people talking about her disappearance. Yeah, so she's imagining these situations that are going on about her. Um, and I'm sure we've all done that ourselves. Yeah. Um, and again, this fantastic acting where these voiceovers are going on, but you can see it in her face and you can see, again, this paranoia, yeah. this guilt forming and growing as she's driving. And as she's driving away, it's getting dark. This mm. is a very long drive. I don't know how long it is Arizona to California. I, I really don't know. Um, sorry, I'm quite ignorant in that sense. <laughs> But it's a very long drive. It's taken her two days. Yeah. And she, as she's pulling up to the Bates Motel, it's pissing it down with rain. It's pitch black. But the light is just shining on her and there's a spotlight on her face. Yeah. And that sort of, it showcases Janet Lee's facial expressions. Yeah. And that side of her acting, which is just great. And, and there's, a, there's a moment prior to this where... She, you know, she's got this look of worry and guilt on her face, but then when she starts thinking of uh, the guy who's chatting her up, the guy whose money she stole, there's a slight smile on her face yeah. where she's almost pleased with herself that, you know, she's got this excuse that the guy was a bit of an arsehole yeah. and didn't care if he lost his money. Yeah. And again, it's just that fantastic face acting that you know, really pulls it off. Yeah. Because, because the guy was a lech. He was, he was a knob. Yeah. He was a show off. He was, you know, he was showing off the fact that your $40,000 didn't mean anything to him. Yeah. And she's like, well, fuck you. Fuck yeah. You know, I'm going to crack on with my life. This is going to benefit me way more than it's going to benefit you and your spoiled daughter. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so she goes to Bates Motel because it's raining so badly she can't see where she's driving. And uh, there's no one at reception, but she sees an old lady in the window of the house opposite. So she beats the horn to get someone's attention and Norman Bates comes down to greet her. Uh, again, as we mentioned earlier, you know, very normal looking guy, uh, dressed normally. You wouldn't think for a second there's anything going on there. No. Um, he tells her there's 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. She signs her name in the guest book as Marie Samuels and Norman shows her to her room and shows her around. Uh, he then asks her to have sandwiches and milk with him for dinner. And uh, goes off to get it prepared uh, whilst she hides the money in some newspaper. Yeah, so you feel for Marion yeah. and her situation. And we can put ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Um, with Norman, we sympathise with him. Yeah. Because he's got this business. The main road has been moved through no fault of his own. Mm -hmm. And he's got 12 cabins and 12 vacancies you know he's a struggling businessman 
he seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, he's a bit, bit um, uh, bumbling, isn't he? Yeah. He's socially awkward. Socially awkward. Socially awkward, and you you can tell that he's he you know Marion is a, a beautiful woman, a beautiful confident woman, and he initially struggles to interact with her. Yeah. He you know. Uh, stumbles when he's speaking to her and he, he's a bit like a kid um, talking to his crush you, you know yeah. it's one of those situations and you sympathise with him and again Norman Bates is humanised yeah. in, in this part of the film you know you get to know him as a character and you feel for him because at this point you know it's not even a horror film yet no it's not it's not even a horror film yet um so it's just, it's kind of just a bit like, like drama, you know, she's stolen the money. That's all we know yeah. so far. What's going to happen to this money? Uh, it could go anyway, you know? And it's this slightly handsome, but dorkish boy, you mm. know? And he, yeah, it's like a boy in the film, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, Trying to get his words out when talking to a beautiful woman. Yeah. Do you remember when Rihanna played Marion Crane in Bates Motel? I didn't see that, but yeah. <laughs> what a great casting choice. Well, apparently she did well in it, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. I, do, I haven't got that far in the series yet, but that is a good casting choice. Um, so, yeah, he shows her around, it, it obviously arranges dinner, and she overhears his mother uh, having a bitch about her and telling Norman not to bring her to the house. Yeah, so the, the house is quite far away from the motel. Yeah. Um, so I did think it was like she's very loud. Marion to hear every word. That that woman must be very loud. But she's she's like oh, I'm not having that hussy in this house. All women are slags. Don't let her in. <laughs> Essentially, that's what she's saying. So she's uh, absolutely fuming at the thought of a woman in her yes. house flirting with her son. So instead, Norman brings the milk and sandwiches to her and. Uh, Tells her that his mum isn't quite herself today. Uh, he hesitates to go into her room, so he invites her into his office and then into his parlour, which is absolutely full of stuffed birds, which made me think, do you think this is here instead of the uh, skin decorations? I think so, Because, yeah. you know, I mean, I thought Hitchcock was going to put up human skin. Um, <laughs> she'd probably be a bit like, okay, you've got human skin hanging up, I'm going to leave. Mm. I mean, it's bad enough for the stuffed birds. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely think that in in terms of the Ed Gein story, the birds are representative of yeah. the the skin. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And it was a it was a, uh, a, a clever touch to have him hesitate yeah. to go into her room as well. Yeah. I noticed that whilst watching it this time where she sort of invited him into her room um, because she's not fearful of him. No. What she's fearful is what's going on in Arizona yeah. without yeah. her there. That's what she's fearful of. So of course she'd invite this bumbling you know, boy Yeah. you know this man child yeah. into her room because she's not scared of him at all. Yeah, and it's almost like she likes him so much that she's forgot about what's going on with the money and everything because 
you see her character change, you see she's more comfortable, yeah. which makes it all the more terrifying when what eventually is going to happen, happens. She sympathises with him yeah. the same way that we've been sympathising with him. Yeah. We feel sorry for him. She feels sorry for him as well, particularly after the exchange with yeah. his mother as well. Yeah. You know, she goes on to say that she would never allow anyone to talk to her yeah. like that. Um, and she feels sorry for him. She, I don't think she, uh, at all that she's interested in him romantically. No. Um, uh, not not to say that he's an ugly guy, but because she feels sorry for him. Yeah. You know, she's got Sam Loomis. He's a big, hulking, mm. you know, uh, man. Uh, whereas she's interacting with this uh, man-child, Yeah. <laughs> as I keep saying. He tells her that she's like a bird. Uh, explains about birds eating a lot and uh, then goes on to say he knows nothing about birds he just uh, stuffs things as a hobby which is is a very clever touch because you've got this room full of birds you expect some sort of bird expert and this is why he's got all this hair he's like I don't give a shit about birds just like stuffing things like oh okay and birds just happen to be the best things to stuff yeah Um, because what does he say? Because birds are quite passive to yeah. begin with. Whereas when it's normal animals, it just doesn't look right. No. But a bird stuffed looks good. Um, which is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he explains that it's more than a hobby because a hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. So he basically spends all of his time stuffing birds. Yeah, and we feel sorry for him. Marion yeah. feels very sorry for him at this point. Yes, yeah, this wow. is when he explains a boy's best friend is his mother. Obviously, the famous quote everyone yes. you know associates with the film. Which, in the context of the rest of the film, is super creepy. It is, yeah. But at this point, when you're watching this film for the first time, yeah, it's sad. He's a lonely person. He's, you know, the only person he has in his life is somebody who is a terrible bitch to him. Yeah. You know, he's got a failing business for no fault of his own. He's a very sad character. Yeah. But he's not weird. It's not... In the context of the film, carrying on, when we watch it again, we know all these behaviours are weird. Yeah. We know they are. But because we're feeling sympathy for him... We don't find it particularly weird. We just we just think he's a bit of a sad geek, yeah. really. Um, so these things that he says and does aren't as creepy until after what's happened, which humanizes him mm. as a character, which makes him even scarier in the context of the rest of the yeah. film. Yeah, and this is when uh, when Marion says to him. You know, that she was disgusted by the way that his mum spoke to him. And it really, it triggered something. And you see a bit of a sign of something where he yeah. he explains, you know, he'd like to deal with it. He'd like to take control of the way she speaks to him. But she, uh, his mum's ill uh, because she raised him after his father died. And she had a new man who also died, leaving her nothing but Norman. And the son is a poor substitute for a lover. Yes. So he gets slightly aggressive at this yeah. point and he leans, his body language, he leans yeah. forward towards Marion, yeah. who thought she just made a supportive comment, yeah. um, but he did, couldn't take the criticism no. of his mum, which is where the inkling of, oh, okay, this guy is weird. This behaviour isn't a sad person. It's a 
weird person. Yeah. He slowly becomes more weird during this conversation. Yeah. We see that and Marion sees that as well. And she doesn't take the, the hint of that and she tells him that he should run away. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he gets a little more aggressive, tells her that he can't leave his... Uh, his mum alone, and then she still doesn't take the hint and suggests that he uh, he puts her in a home somewhere. He takes that as uh, putting her in an institute, and he is not pleased and seems to know a lot about mental institutions. Yeah, he gets way more aggressive. Not way more, excuse me, but again, the body language yeah. is more aggressive. Yeah. His face turns... And he's getting heated. Yeah. He's getting heated. Yeah, he explains and how his mum needs like him. Um, and then explains that she just goes a little mad sometimes. And again, another classic quote. He tells her, we all go a little mad sometimes. To which she associates herself with that. She, he's like, don't you? And she's like, oh, yeah, I do, yeah. And she, you know, she puts herself in that situation with him. She still doesn't click on to the fact he's a fucking weirdo. But the conversation also included them talking about traps. Yeah. Um, and how everybody is stuck in their own trap, yeah. fighting to get out. And Marion realises that she's in her own trap, and she explains that, you know, Norman is in a trap of, not of his making, whereas she is in a trap of her making. Yeah, She has caused this situation, and... It's kind of something that um, ties the two together. Yeah. And I think for Marion, because of that and because of the conversation they've had, she's still quite trusting of him. And when he is quite aggressive, she she realises that. But I think she still kind of feels sorry yeah. for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she goes back to her room and he watches her undress for a peephole. Yes. Um... Obviously, he doesn't have a wank like Vince formed us. He doesn't, no. Uh, but he watches her in dress, and uh, he goes back to his house, whilst she flushes some papers down the toilet, the famous scene. Yes. So, earlier in the film, when she arrives at Bates Motel, he looks at the keys, because obviously he's got 12 cabins, 12 vacancies, and he sort of hovers over one, and then decides to go for cabin number one. And so from that moment, mm. he was like, oh, I fancy a bit of that. Yeah. Knowing that cabin one is right next door to his reception mm-hmm. and there's a peephole yeah. in between. So yeah. he, he knew that he was going to have a good old eyeful yeah. at some point that evening. So she gets into the shower. And of course, this is a famous scene that everybody's aware of, regardless of what type of films you watch. And something is approaching behind a curtain. Um, Superb cinematography. Yes. In this scene, yes, uh, everything is just perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this figure approaching. It looks like there's a wig there. Um, you know, it could well be an old lady. Yeah. Um, could well be an old lady. Whoever it is pulls the curtain back, and we get the strings come in, and he or she stabs her to death, and this scene it really hits you because. In, in many slasher films since this, it's easy to look at kills as in, oh, here's another one, there's another one, and it just happens. Mm. And it becomes a fun part of the film. This isn't fun because it goes into so much detail, but yet still not as much detail as you think you're seeing. 
No. You can hear noises. Yeah. You see the knife going towards her. You don't actually see the knife go in her. No. But it goes on for so long that you feel like you're seeing all this. And after it ends, as you mentioned earlier, the music stops and you're left to think about what's happened. Yeah. And all you can hear is the shower still yeah, running. Yeah. She reaches for the shower curtain and ends up pulling off, falls uh, over and dies. We see a close-up of the plug hole and then a close-up of her eye and then it zooms out to her lifeless face. And, and such an effective shot. Everyone goes on about the whole, you know, shower cut being pulled back, her being killed scene. But it, it's even more effective after that scene when you see her dead and then it, it hits you and you're like, shit, our main character's dead. Yeah. It, it's So the shower scene itself, it, it's expertly crafted. Yeah. Because what other films would maybe have done is just have the curtain... Her scream. Yeah. We see the knife in the hand, and then we cut away. Yeah. And we just have noises, or we have, you know, we cut to her dead. Mm-hmm. What we get is a series of very quick cuts. Yeah. yeah. Very quick cuts where we see parts of her body, and this is where people are like, oh, I swear I saw a nipple, you know, but from different angles, seeing the knife move yeah you know and we see parts of her body with the knife and people swear that they saw it you know enter her body Mm. saw her actually being stabbed but it's because these very quick very precise cuts of different angles of her and of the weapon Mm -hmm. that works perfectly yeah it works perfectly and it's you feel like you've watched her be stabbed yeah um, but actually, for the 1960s censors as well, mm. you know, she hasn't. You haven't seen yeah. that much violence, but you feel like you have because of this expertly crafted scene. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is a character you've grown to love by this point. So it's, it's a big blow. It, yeah, absolutely. And then absolutely. You, it's a shock. You're left thinking, because after this, Norman questions his mother what happened, goes to the room, finds her dead body, and casually just effortlessly, you know, it hasn't phased him. He just cleans it all up, wraps the body up, puts everything in the back of her car and, and gets rid of it. And and then you're left to think, whilst this is going on, where is this going? You're, you're what, 40, 50 minutes into the film? Yeah. And this has become, you know, the Janet Lee effect. And you, you see this in the likes of Scream, Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. uh, where your final girl... It isn't your final girl. You think this is your main character, but no, she's dead. Yeah, it's in, so. What I liked is when the camera zoomed in on the plug. Yeah. And then zoomed out, and it was from Janet Lee's eye. Yeah. And then we see her face, um, staring at us, mm. and you know she's she's dead so yeah. she's not actually staring at the camera yeah you know she's not breaking the fourth wall but it feels like she is yeah. because she's staring right at us as an audience yeah and it also the, the duality of norman bates's personality mm-hmm. is that he's screaming blood 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 yeah and then when he gets there he's very passive yeah and he's like okay i need to clean this up now yeah you know um, and he's very passive, and it's a very long scene of him cleaning up. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's expert acting by Anthony Perkins, mm-hmm. because he's very passive. Yeah. And very, 
um, Creed. This is when he's creepy. Yeah. This is when you know he's done this before. Yeah. Because he's already peeped on her. Yeah. We think he's covering up for his mother because we've just seen an old lady. Yeah. Stab her in the shower. Uh-huh. We didn't see the old lady's face, but we, as an audience, think this old lady and he's covering up for his mother, and he probably knows more. Yeah. You know, he's shocked, but then he's, because he's such a mother's boy and he's so repressed by his mother, he's very passive when it comes to cleaning up. Yeah. So we think maybe this isn't the first time this has happened. Yeah. Now we're in a horror film, you know, and what we would now call a slasher film, and they might potentially going to be more victims yeah. of this old lady. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. And from. But only, what, five minutes before, it was how's this woman going yeah, to get rid of yeah. this 40 grand? Yeah. And he just puts the 40 grand into the boot of the car with her body and everything cast, and it's gone. The purpose of the film is gone. Yeah. He puts it all into the swamp. Yeah. And it sinks. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're shown Sam is writing a letter to Marion uh, whilst a customer of his is talking about painless killing of insects. Yes. <laughs> She wants to make sure a spray that she's buying ensures painless killing. Um, and there's this idea of two sides of his personality. Yeah. There's two sides of this film. Yeah. There's a passive side mm. and there's an aggressive side. Yeah. You know, it, it's just really just expert filming. Yeah. It really is. Um, Lila, who is Marion's sister, uh, she turns up at Sam's store and confronts him about the disappearance. And private investigator detective Milton Arbogast also turns up. And discusses the experience, the disappearance with them, and he explains that she's missing with the money and was seen leaving town by her boss, so he did see her. Um, we get a montage of Arbogast uh, questioning all the locals, uh, the local stores, the hotels, about Marion's disappearance before he goes to Bates Motel. Yeah, Arbogast is very smug to yeah. begin with, but like Lila says later, I, I do feel he felt sorry for them yeah so he wanted to be as helpful as possible yeah not only for um the, the guy whose money it was mm-hmm. but also so they can actually locate their mm. girlfriend slash sister this is also another fantastic performance he was good he He's was good really really good it's rare you get a cast where every single cast member yeah. gives it 100% like yeah, this yeah they do yeah um, so he goes to Bates Motel, speaks to Norman about Marion, and this is where his acting skills are really showing off, uh, especially with Anthony Perkins as well. The back and forth between the two of them in the scene is incredible. Oh, great. Really intense. It really ramps up the suspense. Um, you can see um, Anthony Perkins, like, starting to sweat. Yeah, yeah, and I noticed that as well. Um, he He's shown a picture of Marion, but he won't look at the picture. No. Um, and he just keeps telling them no one's been here no one's been here in a couple of weeks and he eventually looks says he hasn't seen her but then Arbogast checks the guest book sees the fake name realises it's her and how she's made up the name of her name and Sam's name and he's really Norman starts sweating and then admits that he did see her she stayed one night only he starts tripping upon his words and explaining more about what happened uh, before eventually offering to show Arbogast around all 12 cabins. But Arbogast spots mother in the window. I've heard of actors being able to make themselves cry on the spot. But I've never heard of actors yeah. making themselves sweat you on the spot. genuinely <laughs> think he is panicking. It feels, yeah, yeah. 
It's I don't I don't know so if they put like a light on him or yeah. something or warmed it up. It's but so you can convincing. see him sweat as this conversation continues, and you know Abagast is getting more and more suspicious, because like Marion, Norman isn't a great liar. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's a normal person who isn't a great liar. Yeah, you know he's makes himself look so suspicious. It's like the two halves of the film. Uh, examples of good and bad people because mm. you've essentially you know you had Marion hiding something in the first half of the film which is a good person but now you've got Norman hiding something in the second half of the film and he's not a good person no you, whereas you didn't want Marion to get caught you want him to get caught yeah uh, it, it's really clever in that in, in, within that contrast um, so Abagast spots mother in the window and uh, and after this he uh, he says that he wants to go speak to her but Norman is not happy about this, is he? No. And and he can't speak to her without a warrant anyway. Um, yeah. So... The... But he Norman trips up on this because he says, Oh, Marion might have fought me, but she didn't fought my mother. And I was yes. oh, so she spoke to your mother then. But uh, that's when he hasn't, yeah, not speaking to her. But that's the other side of his personality yeah. slowly coming out. Yeah. There's a, you get a glimpse of it and then he actually gets quite aggressive. And yeah. pretty much forces Albergast into his car and out yeah. see you later and, and Abagast calls Lila and tells her the news about Marion being there and uh, explains that he's going back there yeah he feels sorry for Lila yeah which is why he's keeping her updated with yeah because he doesn't have to he's just there to find the money yeah but he wants to find Marion for Lila and for Sam yeah as well so he's so, a good guy he he's, is he's an actually, he is he seemed quite smug at the beginning but he's actually a good guy yeah and he goes back to Bates Motel, uh, finds the parlour of stuffed birds, and then goes to the Bates house. He walks up the stairs, and as he's going up there, something that's up there with some of the greatest jump scares of all time, uh, Mother, as, as we think it is, yeah. she storms out of her room with a massive knife in her hand, slashes it in the face. We see him fall down the stairs backwards. A very, very good shot. Um... And I don't know how they filmed that. I think he was just in a chair, pretending to be falling. They must have had to sit in the background. Background. Um, and yeah, so she slashed him in the face. Very graphic. Um, this scene, you do you don't see a knife going on it, but you see the after effect. Yeah. Um, he goes to the bottom and she runs down the stairs and just stabs him to death. And we fade out. He finishes them off, yeah. And great death scene. And it's a bit... I mean, we've seen now this killer yeah. move very swiftly for an old lady. So we're quite suspicious yeah. as well. It, it, there's always... You know, it's it's never apparent who it is, what mm. it is, or why it is, which keeps you in suspense. That yeah. builds the tension. Yeah, so Lila wants to go to Bates Motel, but Sam won't let her, so he goes instead... Uh, calls out for Abagast and Norman's there and he hears this. But there's no confrontation. Sam goes back and said he couldn't find anyone other than a sick old lady. Yeah. I don't know why he said sick old lady. <laughs> She's just in the window. Um, Sam and Lila go to tell Sheriff Al Chambers about what's happened. And Al calls Norman and questions him about Abagast and Norman tells him he's left. You, you know that they know him. He's a local and... Seemingly, they think he's all right. And the sheriff's wife is confused. She yeah. says, has Norman took a wife? When they talk about a woman yeah. there. 
and she questions it. So again, it's a little piece of that puzzle. And if, if you if you are taking particular attention, you notice these things, and it's another piece of the puzzle, you know, um, to understanding what is eventually yeah. the twist at the end. And Sam continues to insist that he saw Mrs. Bates there, and this is when Al reveals that Mrs. Bates has been dead for years. Ten she, years. Ten years. She poisoned a boyfriend, poisoned herself, and Norman found them both dead. And I think this is the moment where first-time watchers in the 60s would have been like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on in this house? Yeah. So Norman, uh, back at the house, is speaking with Mother straight after we're given this information. And she's refusing to hide in the cellar, so he carries her down into the cellar. Yeah. And you don't see her face or anything. So you actually think he's carrying his mum down there. Like, and we're hearing two, two voices. Distinct, yeah. different voices. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we think his mother was <laughs> a zombie? <laughs> or, you know, something fishy's going on. Yeah. Al tells Lila and Sam that he went to Bates Motel and everything was fine. Mother wasn't there. But they're not having this and they actually go to Bates Motel. Uh, pretend they're man and wife and their idea is to search the place. Yeah, Lila's a very strong character. Yeah, she is. I will yeah. get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And again, another very strong performance. Mm. Yeah, you know. yeah. Uh, Sam and Lila make their way to the room without Norman showing them around. They're not having any of his uh, conversation that he's trying to make with them. Uh, and then eventually they investigate the room that Marion stayed in. Uh, what was it they find in there? They find no shower curtain, which is suspicious, but also a tiny little piece of paper from the note that yeah. Marion uh, ripped up. Fortunately for them and the plot, it has $40,000 on there, <laughs> so they know that it's from Marion. Yeah. Or, or they're highly suspicious that Marion wrote that note. Yeah, so Lila wants to go to the house and find out what's going on. So Sam distracts Norman, starts talking to him. Uh, Norman's not saying a lot, but Sam's constantly talking. Um, Lila finds Mrs. Bates' clothes and the shape of her in her bed. Norman starts getting defensive when Sam suggests that he should get away for a bit. <laughs> whilst Lila finds a room with children's stuff. Yeah. Like toys and such. Yeah, which... The bed isn't made, so yeah. it looks like someone's been sleeping in there. Yeah. I.e. Norman. That's Norman's room. Yeah. Sam intimidates Norman by questioning him some more, and then Norman clicks on and is like, oh shit, where's uh, this guy's girlfriend? And realises that she's at the house, so he knocks Sam over the head with an ornament, knocks him out, goes to the house, and Lila goes to hide in the basement, where she finds, in a very iconic scene, Mrs. Bates's corpse... And screams, and within that split second of when this happens, this is when you know you got the realization: shit, this guy has been talking to a fucking corpse yeah. the entire time. Which now looking at it now and analyzing it, it's fucking disturbing. Yeah, and really has a certain horrible feeling to the film, which is very rare for a film of nineteen sixty. Uh, after this happens. Norman comes running out, dressed as his mother, holding a massive knife, but Sam manages to stop him, and uh, he is taken to the police station. Yeah, and this is... The, the film's been building up, building up. We had that moment in the middle, and then the second half is building up, building up, building up to this moment, and it, very much similar to the shower scene, 
Yeah. It's the shit hits the fan. It's like, oh, we yeah. find out that, you know, um, his mum's been dead for God knows how many years. Her body's there in a great um, shot of her, the, the chair spinning. Mm. Uh, Lila hits the light. So the light's going batshit crazy yeah. in there. Norman appears and then Sam appears and they wrestle and, yeah. and all that. And so all this tension is built to this moment and, you, you know, heart pounding, you know, all, all that. Um, great, wonderful. Yeah, yeah really one, of, one of the greatest twists of all time, yeah. the fact that it, it was a corpse yeah. the entire time. Yeah, it really is. Uh, so this is when we get the psychologist scene. Uh, where and I feel like this is after all that build-up and that crescendo. Yeah. Um, I think I understand where it's like with this kind of flattens afterwards because it's quite a long scene of him explaining everything. Yeah. When... Maybe it wasn't necessary. I mean, I don't mind it, you know. Yeah. Um, it pieces it all together and, and such, and it's interesting, and it brings up the themes of the duality and the two personalities yeah. that run throughout the whole film. Yeah. So it's very interesting in that aspect. But I can understand why some people think it's a bit flat. Yeah, I mean, we find out that Norman essentially doesn't exist. He believes he's his mother. Yeah. Uh, two of her missing girls' corpses are found in a swamp. Uh, Mrs. Bates was a clinging, demanding woman. She pushed Norman out of her life when she found a new man, so he killed them both, uh, kept his mum's corpse and pretended to be her. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Mrs. Bates side of him would go wild whenever he'd find a woman attractive. Yes, yeah. And uh, this is when Norman is called a transvestite, but a psychologist corrects the statement and says, no, he wasn't trying to be a woman per se he he, he was, was trying he was to specifically he his was his mother mom. he was specifically his mother yeah he believed he was his mom yeah and so throughout the whole you know after his mother died there were two parts of him yeah him and his mother and slowly progressive the more aggressive side of it his mother's personality built and built and built and built and built yeah and then at the end of the film he's mind psychologically is completely his mother's yes yeah so a uh, police officer brings norman a blanket and uh norman hears his mum's voice giving a monologue about how she grasped him up so she wasn't blamed and norman has a fly on his hand and she knows that people are watching her so she says they'll know they'll see and they'll see i wouldn't she wouldn't even harm a fly so in his head so he, in this voiceover, it's like I had to tell them that Norman did it. I had to because you know, uh, what would an elderly person like me be able to do? Yeah. If they got into trouble, I wouldn't even hurt a fly. And then it is Norman, you know, yeah. and his mind's completely gone now. Yeah, he smiles at the camera. Uh, in a very iconic, imagery. very iconic, um, wonderful performance again. Just on his face. Yeah. And yet it shows so much. Yeah. The car is, uh, Marion's car is dragged out of the swamp and we don't even get credits. That's no, the end of the film. the end as the, the car's being dragged yeah. out of the swamp. And that's Psycho. That is Psycho. That's Psycho. Again, uh, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. One of the scariest horror films of all time. Just absolute cinematic perfection. horror film of all yeah, time. Yeah, it is absolute cinematic perfection. It's just well crafted, really well crafted. Yeah. Every single scene, every single second is expertly made. Yeah. It really is. 
if you if you haven't seen Psycho and you've listened to this episode, that was a terrible mistake. Um, <laughs> Do not watch the remake first. No, it? no. But it, honestly, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it yeah, ASAP. Uh, yeah, so that's Psycho. And uh, we will continue talking about Halloween classics next week. And we'll be talking about Shivers. Ooh. David Cronenberg's 70s body horror masterpiece. Yes. Uh, until then, if you want to talk to us about Psycho, if you want to talk to us about uh, Vince Vaughn having a wank in the remake, <laughs> we're Horacult Trash Over on Facebook and Instagram, Horacult Trash on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. Like, follow on everything as, and give us a follow on Spotify. I am DeadAtGaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruz92 on Twitter. I am ChrisBarker823 on Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter. And we'll actually see you on Sunday, which is weird for us. We'll see you on Sunday for our first BFI London Film Festival coverage episode. It's got off to a great start. Yes. So hopefully that continues, and uh, we'll tell you all about it on Sunday. Yes. So we'll see you on Sunday. Bye.